0: by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word. Oh, Father, we're just thankful that we have the light of your word. That is the written word, but above all, the living word, the light of the world, to illuminate our thinking, to help us to understand reality as you created it and as it is, and for us to understand who we are honestly and objectively. Father, we pray that through God the Holy Spirit, as we study your word today, that God the Holy Spirit will help us to understand what it says, what it means, and as well what it means in terms of our own goals and objectives for our lives and how we are to uh, order our lives in a way that conforms to your plans and purposes for us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're continuing our study in this extraordinarily significant passage because it teaches us about why we're here, why I am here as a pastor teacher, and why you are here as believers in Christ who understand that it doesn't end with getting saved. That's only the beginning. It's, it's that birth process. And we looked at this last time that this birth process um, begins with regeneration. So it then extends. God just didn't save us so we could all be happy with him in heaven. He has a number of purposes And ultimately, he is taking us somewhere in our spiritual life. And that's what we're looking at in Ephesians 4. It is described in terms of maturity, and it is described in terms of being like Christ. And we need to understand that a little more. So we have looked at these passages and seen in Ephesians 4... 11, we see the beginning of this. This is the controlling phrase is that first four words. He and he himself gave. What you have in verse um, 13, verse 14, flow back to that main clause that helps us understand how all this fits together because sometimes you just get lost in these long sentences Uh, of the apostle paul i'm going through some long ones in um, as i'm studying ahead in philippians and you, you know i i have to sit down and do various things like diagram the sentence and chart out the sentence just to structure his flow so it's that he gave these gifted people to equip the saints for the work of the ministry verse 12 but toward an end, the ultimate end is that we all come to the end of fa- the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And the next step is to mature man and then ultimately to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're going to talk about that phrase a little more uh, this morning. And that's positive. The negative is with the, for the purpose he gave these gifted people for the purpose. That's that first word in Ephesians four fourteen, that it's for the purpose that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There's a problem is that there's too many believers who are children. And this isn't a good word for children. There's good words for children. There's words that are can literally mean children and words that we use for a child literally but can also be used in an insulting way to somebody who is 25 years old and acting like a child. If you think about it when you're on an airplane and if the uh, flight attendant has a sense of humor, they'll say, you know, if you have any children or those who act like children sitting with you, first you put your Uh, oxygen mask on yourself and then on them because we all know that there are people, nobody here I know, but there are people who just don't grow up very well and they're still at 25 or 35 or 85 still children in a bad way. So that's the idea here. It's it's a, a little bit of a pejorative. So we looked at this last time and we see that at the instant of faith in Christ, every believer is born again. That's the terminology that is used by Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. He tells Nicodemus that he won't see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Titus 3.5 uses the word regeneration. We are regenerated. We are made alive again because we are born spiritually dead, But physically alive. So it's just a semblance of life that we have as unbelievers. We think we're, we have real life, but we don't because we're not attached to the source, which is uh, the Lord Jesus, which is God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, at that point, a number of things happen at the instant of salvation. And at that point, we are immediately, instantly made a new creature in Christ. All things are new. Um, all things, the old things have passed away, and all things are new. That's 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Then third, we have to recognize that this new life isn't a life of restriction. This is a sad thing about so many Christians who are legalistic and always thinking about what Christians ought not do, should not do, in their opinion. And so they make it look like the Christian life is about not doing things that appear to be fun. And that is not what the Scripture says at all. The Scripture says, Jesus said, I came to give life, that is, eternal life at the instant of faith in Christ, and to give it abundantly so that we can have a rich, meaningful, significant life and understand what that means. And that is from John 10.10. And then that abundant life in 1 Peter two two is the result of taking in the word, that we are to desire the unadulterated. That's an important word there. It's it, it, it translated that way that it's the pure milk of the word. It's the unadulterated milk of the word. And so often what you get in too many pulpits is that it's adulterated. It's mixed with that which is erroneous. Because we, as we looked at um, an article on, uh, I shared on Tuesday night that we live in a world that has been uh, has so infiltrated the church and infiltrated seminaries and infiltrated Christian organizations in ways that that you can hear it, you know it, and then you read some report and you just can 't believe it. It is so bad because people have not focused on the Word. They have added the thinking of the world, and that becomes the controlling factor in how they how they live their life. And, it, and they end up just like the Israelites did at the time of uh, the judges, is that their lives really don't look much different from the lives of the unbelievers around them, and in many cases uh, they look worse. So the... Jesus says that he comes to give us this abundant life. So how are we to realize that abundant life? And I think part of it is to understand what God's goal is for us. So we're going to take some time to understand this verse and the significance of this verse, which I began with and ended with last time. But because it is a verse that in the English uses a couple of words that are theological hotspots and they're confusing and people don't understand them and don't apply them well and they have given rise to some uh, form, theological, uh, theological systems that are uh, not really reflective of what these words mean. We covered a lot of this early on in the 17th lesson of Ephesians, but I haven't, t- and that was three years ago. This is the 150th lesson. I didn't think it would be that long. There's a, so much here to gr- to grapple with. But this says, for whom he knew, I have um, I have uh, paraphrased this. This is my translation. For he whom he knew and marked off. That is. In the English, it is for whom he foreknew, and foreknowledge means to know something ahead of time. It is used that way many other times in non-theological contexts in the New Testament that, that Paul would talk about something we knew ahead of time. And that's how it should be understood that whom he that is God knew and marked off that there is something that is that is happening here that God is marking off those who believe in Christ. It's a corporate context, a it's corporate concept. It's not talking about God individually picking who will be going to heaven and who will not be going to heaven. And so that is. Uh, you get into various other words such as election, um, and election, as we have viewed it many times in the Scripture, has the idea of uh, of choice, not in the act of a choice, but the selection of the qualified people. It's used of the tribe of Benjamin that they uh, had uh, a thousand slingers who could hit. Uh, I'll paraphrase it into English. They they could hit. A quarter at a hundred yards without missing, they were qualified. you know they just didn't get to be a slinger and join that elite group because they looked good, or that they could hit the target one out of ten times. they had to be qualified, and then they were called choice slingers because they were they were, they were excellent, they excelled and that word is described and translated as choice in many contexts, but then all of a sudden when it comes to a theological context, it becomes elect, and you drive into it this deterministic view of election that really derives from Augustine in the 5th century AD, and he sort of brought that with his other religious baggage before he was saved, but you really don 't see that described in those those deterministic ways prior to him that 's the end of our history lesson this morning so in romans eight twenty eight for whom God knew ahead of time and marked them off uh, and he set their future destiny. That's the word predestined. People think that, and we'll go into that in just a minute, means that God is determining who's going to go to heaven and who's not going to go to heaven. And that's, that's not what it means. But it, what it means is that God has set the destiny for everyone who believes in Christ, that God's goal for their life is to make them like Jesus Christ. God's goal for your life is to conform your character to the life, to the character of Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, against which there is no law. So what we have here is God's desire, his goal, where he's taken you. He's working in each of our lives to conform us to the character of Christ. But what happens is you have too many believers who are more concerned about uh, being a success in my job, being a success in school, nothing wrong with those things. But when they're more important and they take the place of where God's taking you, then there's going to be a conflict. And you're going to be trying to achieve your goals for this time when you're on earth and God's trying to prepare you for eternity. So that's the point of Romans eight twenty nine. God has set a destiny for us for every believer to be conformed to the image of Christ that he that is Christ might be the preeminent one among many uh, brethren so in verse 12 last time we saw that there's the immediate purpose of training all church age believers to do the work of service that's why these gifted leaders are given toward the ultimate goal of spiritually strengthening the body of Christ and in verse 13, until, this states that long-term goal, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice there's no common there. Those aren't two things. They're viewed as those things that are coordinate with one another, closely tied to one another. So it tells us that the unity of the faith having to do with, with what we believe, not the act of believing, has to do with who... Christ is, understanding who Jesus is, his person, and his work. That's the focal point of this unity, Growing to understand that uh, to a perfect man, a mature man. It's not perfect in the sense that we often use it today, a flawless um, person, but a mature man to the measure, and then the ultimate goal is to the measure, or that is the, the standard of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We'll look at that phrase again in a minute. Contrast, in order that or for the purpose that these gifted people are given for the purpose that we should no longer be children. So God has given us those gifted men so that we will not be unstable children that are led astray by false teaching and false ideas and false thinking. That's the, the guts of this. So we saw that there's this sort of a stepping stone and staircase, rather, of the unity of faith to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that phrase, the fullness of Christ, uh, using a Greek word pleroma, which has to do with his, the, the fullness that is all that Christ is in the fullness of his character. So it should be understood it's the fullness that belongs to Christ, his character, so that we are to... The mature person has or is developing this character of Jesus Christ. So that's our goal, to be Christ-like. 1 John 3, 2 echoes it in John's language, not Paul's language. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, in a positive sense, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We're not going to reach that end goal of being perfectly Christ-like until uh, we are absent from this body and face to face with the Lord. Until then, we're all going to struggle with our sin nature. Uh, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him because at the rapture, we'll be transformed. We'll have our our resurrection body. It will be sinless. We'll be glorified and we'll no longer have problems with, with sin. So that's when we finally, finally achieve the goal. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And at the end of this section, Paul will say, but st- speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head. That is expressing the ultimate goal, growing up into Christ who is the head. This raises the question that we should ask, is God's goal for my life the same as my goal for my life? Or am I just too consumed with trying, if you're younger, trying to get established in a marriage, in a house, in a family, finish my education, or if you're older, just enjoying retirement or whatever it may be. But what the Scripture is saying is that the same is God's goal. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's a matter of priority. What is your ultimate goal? So we go back now. I want to talk a little bit about understanding Romans eight twenty nine, And this is so important because you really have to dig into this. A little bit more history, due to the influence of Augustine, who was the bishop of Hippo in what had been Carthage in North Africa, he, um, he came out of, back, of a background of a mixed bag of various philosophies and uh, various religions, such as uh, Neoplatonism and uh, Manichaeism, which were very deterministic. By that I mean the God or gods or fate determine everything. There's no such thing as as genuine uh, free choice, freedom of the will. And so what has often happened is that the word that is translated um, uh, predestined is a word that is taken to be uh, in this deterministic sense. So these are the. This is the word group. It's the third one down is ho, the verb horizo, and you can see that the first two are similar to it in that they have. Uh, the, uh, actually, these, these are the same word. Uh, they have a prefix pra, which means before. Okay, so according to uh, the little instant detail window you get if you're using. Uh, accordance Bible software, it opens this little window, gives you the breakdown of the word and and everything, and it just simply says it means to decide beforehand, to decide ahead of time. Uh, And that's the same kind of an idea that you have in um, a more extensive evangelical lexicon, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, says to decide upon something ahead of time or to predestine. And if you understand the word predestine in its real meaning, you can get a close idea from it that God sets our destiny ahead of time. Our destiny is to be conformed to Christ. There's not I don't have a problem with that, but that's not how it's understood usually, and I'll show you some examples. And then it, it comes from the root haridza, which means to determine or appoint, as you'll find it in Hebrews 4, 7. Or aphorizo, which means to set apart or appoint. Appointing someone to a position is different from predestination in the sense that it is used often in theology. So let's see how it's defined by various sources. In the Erdman's Bible Dictionary, the word predestination says the Greek is praorizo, by the way, the word prohorizo is an extremely rare word. I think it's only used five times in the New Testament, and it's not even attested before the 4th century B.C. in Greek, and there's only one classical Greek usage. Okay, so you have v- very narrow field of usage, and word meaning is determined by usage. You just don't have a lot of data uh, to build on when a word is only used one, two, three, four, five, six times, something like that. But in Erdman's Bible Dictionary, it is the divine determination of human beings to eternal salvation or eternal damnation. Now let me ask you a question. I want you to think about it this way. When we talk about salvation, we frequently, I frequently put up a chart and we talk about the three stages of salvation. Stage one is justification. Happens the instant we trust in Christ as Savior and we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. So phase one is justification, and it determines whether our ultimate, what we ultimately end up in heaven or the lake of fire. That's phase one. Now, in this definition, are they defining predestination as something that relates to phase one or something that relates to phase two, which is the spiritual life? Spiritual life has to do with how you grow as a believer, and some of us grow well, some do not grow well. Uh, We will receive rewards for those who have been obedient, and there will be a loss for those who are disobedient, but not a loss of salvation. So in this definition, the divine determination of human beings to eternal salvation or eternal damnation, is that phase one or phase two? If you say phase two, you're wrong. That's phase one. Very clear. Now we'll look at a different... This is the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. It says that the English word predestination is from the Latin word predestinare, and uh, which translates the Greek praharidzane for ordain. They define it as the divine decree... According to which certain persons are infallibly guided to eternal salvation, is that are they taking that as phase one or phase two phase one it's going to end up in phase three, but it's it's primarily focused on on phase one Faith, uh, predestination and um, uh, another Dictionary says, divine and unalterable determination of the salvation or damnation of human beings even before they are created. Phase one or phase two? That's phase one. Predestination in the next uh, definition is God's foreordination of persons to a particular end, most commonly to a particular eternal destiny and less commonly to a particular vocation or a particular a particular task, and that seems to uh, kind of move things around a little bit. This was in Nelson's New Christian Dictionary, and he, um, uh, it, he doesn't seem to be as ho- strong on phase one, and he tends to focus on the ultimate goal, but he doesn't define it well he, because he talks about a particular eternal destiny, and that usually means heaven or hell. In the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, we read the comment that this compound word prahorizo is only used from the 4th century B.C. onwards. And the only thing that they cite from classical Greek period is a statement by Demosthenes in the 4th, uh, I think it's in the 4th century B.C. The word isn't used at all to translate any words in the Old Testament, so it doesn't have any corollary to anything going on in the Old Testament. So what does Demosthenes say? This is very interesting. Demosthenes writes, he's involved in a lawsuit, and the lawsuit has to do with somebody who tried to move the boundary stones on him so that he could take over part of his property. So he says, to prove that these statements of mine are true that he even now declares that the land is mortgaged for a talent, but that he, there's our word, haridzo, he laid claim to 2,000 drachma more on the house and took the pillars down after the suit was decided. I shall bring forward witnesses who know the facts. So it has this idea of laying claim to a piece of land. It goes on to say that he, that is the mortgagee, had the house marked with stones. In other words, setting, he moved the boundary stones and he set the new boundaries. So that's the idea in the way this is used. The only time it's used that we, that we have from classical Greek. It has to do with uh, setting the boundaries of something. Okay? So the root meaning of harizo has this idea of setting a limit... Or fixing or setting certain boundaries. So, in this sense, God is marking out our boundaries for where He's taking us as the image of Christ. When we're pursuing anything else, we're out of bounds. He is directing us toward this goal of being like Christ. And so God has determined ahead of time the path that he's going to take us down, and the end goal is to be like Christ. It's not to determine whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. That's phase one. This is God's working in our life in phase two that he, as Paul says in Philippians 1 he who began a good work in you will continue it until the end. He will, he is not going to stop working on us until he either takes us home or, or we get there. We won't fully get there in this life. So that's the direction here. God is taking us in that direction. Now, to show how this works, this is a, um, a translation of Romans 8.29 by Arthur Way, who was a classics scholar. So he knew Greek extremely well. And he translates Romans 8.29 this way. He says, Long ere this, that is long before this, he knew our hearts. Long ere this, he claimed us. See, as a man claims property by staking out the boundaries. Uh, as a, he claimed us as a man claims property by setting his landmarks thereon, as though whom he should mold into the very likeness uh, of his son. So he's saying that what he's done is he take those who are, uh, are saved, uh, he is going to mold them into the likeness of his son. So this word, heridzo, has, it's connected with this word horos, which means a boundary or horizon or a re- region, and it originally meant to set bounds, and hence it comes to mean to establish or determine the boundaries or limitations of something. And in fact, it's translated that way in some passages in the um, in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 17, uh, 26, he has made, that is, God has made from one blood... Every nation of men. Now, just as a side point there, that means every human being comes from the original source of Adam and Eve. There are no real races. We're all the human race, and we have all been made from one blood. There's no uh, basis for racism at all. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined or has established their pre-appointed times, and the boundaries of their dwellings. See, that's the New Testament foundation for biblical nationalism. God determined that there would be nations, and that goes back to the Tower of Babel when God scattered the languages. And to show that that's just not an Old Testament concept, Paul is uh, making it clear in Acts seventeen twenty six. But the point is the word usage there, uh, translated as has determined, but it's God established the their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So that's what this is talking about. God is the one who is going to keep us in bounds and in terms of directing us towards the image of Christ. and Acts 10.42, we have the word again, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained, and the uh, uh, Holman Christian Study Bible uh, translates that as appointed, that he who, and that's what I'm arguing for, this word has that idea of appointed. He uh, was he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's referring to Christ. And then Acts 17, 31, again, we see that it has this sense of appointed. Uh, Because he is appointed, it's a different Greek word there. It has the idea of fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and the NET and Holman Christian Study Bible both translate that as appointed. The reason I put that in there is to show you that I'm just not making this up out of whole cloth. I'm not trying to take a th- preconceived theological system and force it into the translation of the text. I'm working within the the information that is given in in all the major dictionaries, lexicons, and translations, so it conforms to what is there, even though it is not always well done in some other translations. So that takes us back to Romans eight29 uh, when we read it, "For whom he foreknew, this is in the American standard Version, for whom he foreknew, that is new ahead of time." he also appointed beforehand to be conformed to the image of his Son. God said, those who are, who are in Christ, those who trust in Christ as Savior, they are the ones that are destined in my plan to conform to, to I will conform them to the image of Christ. In the basic Bible in English, it translates this, Verse 29, because of those whom he had knowledge before they came into existence were marked out by him. See, they set a boundary, like setting the boundary stones going back to Demosthenes. Uh, They were marked out by him to be made like his son. Uh, Verse 30, and those who were marked out by him were named. So I have translated it this way. We know that he brings together for good all things "...for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God knew his own before creation, and also appointed beforehand that they should be spiritually shaped, conformed, spiritually shaped into the character of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of a large family of brothers, and it is these that he appointed beforehand whom he also called." I think that helps break this down and that this traditional theological de- uh, deterministic language is going too far in the way it is translating uh, the Greek text. So the question is, what has God set as the goal for our spiritual growth? We say, okay, I trusted Christ, I'm saved, now what? What? We are to be conformed to the character of his son. That's what God is doing in each of our lives. Romans 8.29, as I've just gone through, that we should be spiritually shaped into the character of his son. We And then we come to Ephesians 4.14. The top translation is New King James. The bottom is the Holman Christian Study Bible. The New King James captures the sense of that the first word in the Greek, which by stating it as a, as a purpose clause, that we should no longer be children. Ephesians, uh, I mean, the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it then. They, they want to take it as a result, but it's really more purpose. But it gets ambiguous because there's some things that this is the purpose, but it also is saying this is the result. So purpose and result at some point come kind of close together where it gets a little subjective as to whether you take uh, one or the other. The Greek preposition here indicates uh, the purpose. The purpose goes back to that opening phrase, he himself gave. He gave those gifted people for the purpose that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried by every wind of doctrine. So the reason God gives pastor, teachers, and evangelists to church to equip the saints, part of it is that they not be immature babies, even though they may have been Christians for a while. And the word that we find that is translated children is the word napios, The trouble with some words is that they have a literal meaning, which can be good, but they're also used in a negative way, as sort of an insult, something quite pejorative. For example, you may use this word napios in its literal meaning of someone who's young, an infant up to puberty. It can describe that in a very literal sense. This is a young person. But all of us, when we were growing up, would be out doing something with some of our peers when we were early adolescents or adolescence. And there'd be somebody who'd start whining about whatever was going on. And somebody would turn around and say, oh, you're just acting like a baby. Well, see, baby has a, has a positive, objective, literal connotation of someone who is just an infant. But you can call somebody who's 13 years old and say, you're, you're, you're a baby, and it's not a good thing. And there are several passages in Scripture where this word is used to bring out that negative idea that it's somebody who ought to be mature and acting their age, and they're not. They're acting like a self-absorbed uh, infant. And we see this in a couple of places, like in Proverbs uh, 132, uh, where the Septuagint uses the word here for simple, for the turning away of the simple. Now, the simple-minded in uh, in Proverbs is not not s- it's just somebody who's naive. It's 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 not a good thing to be simple-minded. It's in contrast to those who are wise who are applying the word to their life. For the turning away of the simple will 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 slay them. And notice it's in um, it's in parallelism with fools in the second line and the complacency of fools. So here it definitely has a negative negative connotation. Romans 2.20, as an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Notice there's an appositional phrase there. The instructor of the foolish, instructor is parallel to teacher, foolish is parallel to babes. So it's used there as, as those who are foolish and immature when they ought not be. And then the one that I think is of most uh, significant theologically is 1 Corinthians 3.1. And the problem is how so many people take it literally and think that the contrast in 1 Corinthians 2.9 down to 3.3 3, is talking about um, immature or brand-new babies in Christ— as opposed to the fact that what Paul is really doing is he is just reaming out the Corinthians. They've been believers for three years, and he's saying, by now you should be mature. But I have to talk to you like you're men of flesh. That's being are sinful men, you're carnal. And he calls them Napias, your babies. Grow up. Quit acting like you're two years old and, and grow up. You've got great Bible teaching. You've been taught the Word, and you're still arrogant. You're divisive. You're living no differently from all the uh, unbelieving pagans around you, and you need to um, grow up. And he says, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual, that is, those who are walking by the Spirit, but as to fleshly, that is, babes in Christ, these whiny, self-absorbed, out-of-fellowship Christians. But you see how easy it is in the English to see this as, well, the spiritual would be mature in contrast to babes, which is immature, and that leads you to a distorted view in terms of your understanding of the spiritual life process, and indeed the fact that, that being spiritual is one who is is uh, not only regenerate, but one who is walking uh, walking by the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.14 go, 4, goes on to say that children are characterized by two things. They're tossed to and fro, and second, they're carried about with every wind of doctrine. So this first word is very dramatic word. It's a, a word that is used to describe a A ship that is out on a storm tossed sea that the waves threaten to turn it over, capsize the vessel that they are they 've lost control uh, maybe they 've lost their rudder they don 't have any direction they are tossed to and fro, and that second word indicates that they 've become somewhat aimless they 're carried about uh, with every wind of teaching. The idea is that they um, uh, the wind comes from all kinds of directions, and they just go whichever way the wind blows. And they don't have a rudder to take them in one direction. They're no longer stable, and uh, they have been taken off course. So this is the, the description of this Napios. Is he just he, every time you hear somebody say something about the Bible, they just say, "Well, the Bible says," and they think whatever they say after that is is true they have no frame of reference they have no discernment they have no way to critically evaluate what somebody says and so their knowledge of the scripture is 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 almost nothing and they will hear anybody who talks about Jesus they think that's wonderful and we have mega churches that that dot the landscape in every major city every small city every state in this union and all over your television sets that are teaching false doctrine, and people sit there, and you know they sit there by the in the droves because otherwise they wouldn't be getting all of the money coming in that they do to stay on the air. And it's just amazing how many people fall for this because they they are uh, they want to go and listen to somebody who tells them what basically validates what they already want are already doing and what they want to do. And not somebody who's teaching them what God's word says. And so they'll be attracted to people who just want to boost their ego and not tell them anything about uh, sin or forgiveness or spiritual growth or get into the Bible in any way, shape, or form. So this is what happens. They have no discernment whatsoever, Uh, they are completely unstable. And this leads to problems. We talked a little bit about this one word on a Tuesday night being Daisukas. They are 2 sold They're literally, they are, uh, so filled with the thinking of the world and so conformed to the thinking of the world that it leads to instability in their lives. But if you think, if your thinking is conformed to the world, then it's real comfortable because you're not grading against uh, the culture and you can go along and get along. And there's a lot of believers who are that way. Um, I don't know too many that I would even think came that way in this congregation, but that's, you look at the broad perspectives. That's what this report that I, I read from the other night, uh, this from uh, Arizona Christian university uh, dealing with this worldview inventory on uh, 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 wolves in shepherd's clothing. Even pastors, I can't tell you how many pastors. Sometimes I just get nauseated when I get alumni reports from Dallas Seminary and I read what some of my classmates are doing and have done. I rarely see anybody outside, oh, maybe four, five, six at places like Pre Trevor, the dispensational. Uh, hermeneutics study group or chafer conference and i talk with my our our own class my own classmates and and they can't believe it either i remember when i was uh, researching uh, wimber and the signs and wonders movement and i went to this spiritual warfare conference for research purposes and ran into half a dozen guys i'd gone to seminary and they were just so excited and just lapping it all up like it was the greatest thing in the world and I was just appalled. I mean, a couple of them had been—I'd been fairly close friends with—and they were just so far removed from what they had believed ten years earlier that it was shocking. But that's where we are as a culture. People are influenced by the culture, and uh, they would rather conform to the culture than be conformed to Christ. So this is the problem. They are Napios. They are. Uh, unstable because they don't know the word it is through the word that we are sanctified it is through the word that we are matured it's through the word that we come to understand truth we understand uh, reality as it is it's further described here as trickery cheating or deception by the deception of men and the great deceiver is satan and satan is the father of all lies and so when you listen to the false teaching that comes out of pulpits, then this is just, uh, it's, it's satanic deception. They are self-deceived, Satan further deceives them, and this deception goes out over, over the airwaves and from the pulpits. And this is one reason why uh, historically seminaries never last more than about 70 or 80 years. It's because, and you, I can see it in the seminaries I'm familiar with, is that over that period of time, uh, through satanic attack, uh, they stay conformed to the world and the thinking of, of the world. So the trickery of men, in the cunning uh, craftiness, this the word panurgia, which has the idea of that which is uh, deceptive, that which is uh, a defraud, and then it's modified by uh, method, methodia, methodia, which is the word we get our word method from, and it has to do with strategies. And so they are deceived by men, are cheated by men in the uh, cunning craftiness of this deceitful, these deceitful strategies, and that's the difference in verse. 13, we have the picture of the believer who is growing, uh, the believer who is advancing and being conformed to the uh, fullness of Christ. In contrast, in verse 14, to the believer that stays immature and is deceived by Satan. And then next time we'll get to the last two verses. And just as a foreshadowing, verse 15 begins with love and verse 16 ends with love. In contrast, but speaking the truth in love, and then it talks more about how the body of Christ grows together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study in your word today, and we pray that each of us would be honest with ourselves about where we are. Are we seeking your goals, your objectives for our life? Is our desire to be conformed to the character of Christ or is our desire to live our lives uh, in, in ways that uh, give us comfort and uh, our, our idea of security, or are we focused upon glorifying you in every aspect of our lives and of our thinking? Father, we pray that we might, um, that if there's anyone here that is either physically present or listening as a recording or listening live streaming, that's never trusted Christ as Savior, the first thing, the most important thing, the most important decision in life has to do with our eternal destiny. Not only does it shape our eternal destiny to be in heaven rather than the lake of fire, but it transforms us now so that we can actually uh, begin to experience that abundant life, to realize that fullness of living from the fullness of Christ that is ours as we study your word and as you work in our life to conform us to his character. And Father, we pray that you would uh, open people's eyes to the truth, give us the courage and the objectivity to look at our own lives, our own thoughts, our own plans to determine uh, which way we wish to go, to pursue your glory, to pursue the same objectives that you have for us or to struggle against your will and to seek that which is simply a mirage but has so captivated us. We pray that we might have that courage and honesty to look at reality as you've described it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.